Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to The Pastor's Study. One of my favorite places to go on vacation is Williamsburg, Virginia, because they have the most number of intact colonial buildings in the country. It's the closest thing to going to Europe in the United States. I was there a couple Sundays ago. There's this beautiful church that's 250 years old called Bruton Parish. It's an Episcopal church, and sadly, the Episcopal Church in the United States has become radically liberal. But I wanted to go to this historic church. You know, you can still find an Episcopal priest who preaches the Bible. <clears throat> Not this Sunday. So I go to this Bruton Hall Parish in Williamsburg, and it's a visiting retired bishop who's giving the message. And in his sermon, he says that the Catholic bishops met recently, and at the beginning of the week, it looked like they were much more open to homosexual relationships. But by the end of the week, they held their traditional opinion and became like the Pharisees. I got angry. And I'm sitting there through church thinking, when I shake his hand, do I say something or not? And I was leaning against not. But I'm behind a lady in line, an old lady who shakes the bishop hand, praises him for his sermon, I think, because he took a good pro-gay stand on the issue. The words came tumbling out of my mouth. I said, good morning. Were you saying at the beginning of your sermon that the Catholic bishops who are opposed to homosexual behavior are Pharisees? And he said, no, I was saying that their insistence always on the truth is like the Pharisees. Well, yeah. All right. And I said to him, well, does this congregation approve homosexual behavior for Christians? And he goes like this. I'm the vis I, I don't go to this church. He was the visiting bishop. And I thought, could you take a stand? And sadly, he is taking a stand on the wrong side. You know, on this program, we talk about heresy a lot, modern-day heresy, the heresy of ethical relativism, that maybe it was wrong in the first century, but it's not wrong today. Everything is relative. The heresy of universalism, that everybody goes to heaven whether they believe in Jesus or not. We talk about modern-day heresy a lot on this show. On this program, we're going to ask the question, did the early church have heretics? And we're going to find out the answer is yes. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 15? And there was a heresy that caused the apostles to have what's called the first church council in Acts chapter 15, because they had to decide what to do with this heresy. Would you take out your Bible, Acts chapter 15? Let's pray first. Father, we want to pray for anyone watching this program who goes to an heretical church, that you would just open their eyes and get them out of a bad church into a good church. We pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would help us discern what is true and what is false for our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. Acts chapter 15, the early church handles heresy, starting at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, the Christians, quote, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
All right, here was the ancient heresy here. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. The Apostle Paul had taught, oh no, Jesus alone saves us, but the heretics were adding something. No, Jesus plus being circumcised equals salvation. And the first point is beware of anyone that adds anything to Christ for your salvation. Back about uh, 1517, Martin Luther, the Catholic monk, heard Johann Tetzel come through his town jingling the money box saying, every copper that in my coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. In other words, put money in the box and we'll get your grandma out of purgatory quicker. Luther heard that, had a conniption, nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and basically saying, you don't add anything to Jesus for salvation. Let's look at Verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Here's the next lesson. Fight against heretics. Paul and Barnabas had no little dissension with these heretics. In other words, they stood up, they fought for the truth. You know, we need to fight heresy in the church today. So here's a couple that starts coming to the church I was serving because this is the kind of sermon their pastor preached. Let me read you from this pastor's sermon. What about non-believers? Do they go to heaven? The Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, the scandal of the gospel is that, yes, God has given even to Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, even to the unbelievers, salvation, etc. What about liars, cheats, people who abandon their parents and their children, gays and lesbians, uh, sexual predators, the races, the, in, the list is endless. God's grace is endless. God has granted each of us, insiders and outsiders, salvation. The question remains, though, will we allow the Holy Spirit to prod us? to give us a vision all the way to the depth and width of God's love and forgiveness? Or will we hunker down with those folks just like us, safe, secure, sheltered, limits, firmly fixed? Listen, the Spirit of God is speaking. No, he isn't. You know what the pastor was saying? Everybody goes to heaven. Hitler will be in heaven. The devil will be in heaven because everybody goes to heaven. Pastor, then would you explain to me why Jesus repeatedly talked about hell? And because of this, I mean, th this couple started coming to the church I served because they could put up with it no longer. And I said to them, I, I urge you to leave that church, leave politely, but I said to them, we need to fight heresy today, leave loudly. Would you write a letter to every church council member and say, we're leaving this church because our church now is promoting the heresy of universalism. We've got a pastor, the pastor is promoting homosexuality also from the pulpit. Don't leave quietly, leave politely, but leave very loudly. That's what Paul would have done. He f stood up against the heresy. I, years ago, the congregation that I served and I left the ELCA Lutheran Church over these very kinds of issues you know what, what made me happy, even though the bishop maligned me? I was so happy that the liberal Star Tribune newspaper printed a big article on why Hope Lutheran Church left the ELCA and it enumerated the reasons. I was so happy. When you are encountering heresy, be polite, but don't be quiet. Let's look at verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, 
they, the, uh, Paul and, and Barnabas, were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, and were bringing great joy to all their brethren. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers of the sect of the Pharisees stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. I want you to notice something there in verse 5. It says, some believers, these heretics, these Judaizers that are in, in trying to enforce circumcision, they were still believers. That teaches me something. <laughs> you can be theologically off and saved. These people trying to insist on circumcision, they were messed up. They were still believers. I mean, I, I will tell you, my dad was a Roman Catholic. He went to church every Sunday. When he was dying, I was 19 years old and didn't quite know what I believed about everything, but I was, we were raised Lutheran even though dad was a Catholic. And on his deathbed, he wanted me to read these prayers to the Virgin Mary. And I did it, but I felt real funny about it. And looking back, I wish I wouldn't have done it. But, you know, I think there'll be Catholics in heaven. I, don't, I think you can be off on certain things and still be saying, I mean, the Bible says when you pray, you pray to God. It never says to pray to St. Jude or to Mary. But um, I think there'll be Christian Catholics in heaven. And, and I'm, I'm a Lutheran. I'll find out I had some stuff wrong. Because even the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 13, now I know in part, then heaven I shall understand fully. Every Christian, I think, is going to have to drop some theological baggage that you got wrong when you go into the gates of heaven. So I think you can be off theologically and saved. Nevertheless, let me say this. You can't be way off. If you deny that Jesus died for your sins, you've lost your salvation. If you deny that he literally rose from the dead, according to Romans 10, you've lost your salvation. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter of whether you had to be circumcised to be saved. Here's the next lesson. This is a big one. The apostles settle the matter. I mean, if you want to know, do I need to be circumcised to be saved? You go to the apostles. Or do I believe in free will or predestination? You go to the apostles. Or what should I believe about abortion, premarital sex, homosexuality, uh, all these? Well, you go to the apostles. The apostles settle the matter. Not the Pope, not the Lutheran Church, not Oprah. What settles the matter is, I hope you read your Bible. Because you know what the Apostles' teaching is? It's the New Testament. We are privileged to have the teaching of Jesus and the Apostles. This settles the matter. So put down uh, National Enquirer. Don't read People Magazine. Be careful with the media. Read the Apostles' teaching. This is what settles the matter. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth, the mouth of Peter, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, the Jews. And God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, the Gentiles. Here's the next lesson. There is no room for racism in the church. <clears throat> there is some racism going on in Acts chapter 15, and the Jewish or Christians are saying, 
Ooh, we're going to let those filthy Gentiles into the church? Ooh, and we're not going to even circumcise them first? Ooh, and there was some Jew versus Gentile racism going on. There's no room for racism in the church. And, and here's the reason. Uh, look at the last part of verse 9. God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. There, here's the reason there's no room for racism in the church. We are all saved the same way, faith. The way we're saved is by putting our faith and our trust in what Jesus did for us for our salvation. Whether you're black, yellow, white, uh, whatever, every person is saved the same way by putting our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's why there's no room for racism in the church. Years ago, I don't know who did this, but somebody went up to this interracial couple that had started coming to the church and said, you know, your kind are not welcome here. <laughs> I don't know who did that. If I knew, I'd have to have a talk and say, what an evil thing for you to say. And they never came back. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our Jewish fathers nor we Jews have been able to bear? Here's the next lesson. If you try to be saved by law, by God's law, by earning your salvation, by being good, if you try to be saved by God's law, you will not bear it. <laughs> I mean, I remember years ago, a young woman coming up after a Bible study, tears in her eyes. Pastor Tom... Do you ever feel like you just don't measure up? And I said to her, daily. <laughs> but aren't, isn't it wonderful? We're not saved by our measuring up, but by Jesus measuring up for us on the cross. And, and yet this poor woman was under the weight of the, of the law. And you can't, bear, you can't bear trying to save yourself by keeping the commandments. It doesn't work. Verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, the Gentiles, also are. This is a powerful verse. Uh, uh, let me read it again. We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. Here's the next lesson. This is the central teaching of the New Testament. If you're a Lutheran, it's the central teaching of the Lutheran Church. Here's the teaching. We are saved by grace alone. The word grace means God's unearned favor. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. We're saved simply, totally by the grace of God. I remember an old Lutheran professor saying to us, I am glad that my salvation depends 100% on Jesus Christ and not this much on me because he said, I have trouble doing this much. Have you made the wonderful discovery that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone? Well, let's see how this battle with heresy ended. So the apostles decide Paul is right. All you need to be saved is Jesus. Forget circumcision. They write a letter to go back to the Gentiles telling them this. And so we skip down to verse 30 where we read. And so when they went away, they went down to Antioch and delivered the to the congregation the letter uh, after they'd gathered the congregation. When they had read it, they rejoice, the congregation did, because of the encouragement. Here's the last lesson. When you understand you are saved by grace, you get joy. <laughs> I mean, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. 
1515, he desperately wanted to know he was good enough. He knew he wasn't. He's reading the book of Romans, rediscovers we're saved by grace, not by good works. And he said, quote, I felt like I had gone through open doors into paradise. I felt myself to be born again. Martin Luther wrote a, a commentary in the book of Romans. 200 years later in London, John Wesley walks into a meeting house where Luther's preface to the book of Romans is being read. And he said this, about a quarter before nine that night, I felt my heart strangely warmed and an assurance was given me that Christ had taken away my sins, even mine. And Wesley gets born again. Luther, uh, Paul discovers grace. Luther discovers grace. Wesley discovers grace. And when you discover you're saved by God's grace, not by me trying to earn it, it'll give you joy. <laughs> I mean, I remember being 20 years old. I was raised Lutheran, and I didn't get this for some reason. But I was 20 years old sitting in Romans class at, a, at Bethel College, and the professor explained Romans chapter 3. That's when the light bulb went on. We're saved by God's grace, not by me, but by him. Hallelujah. Have you made the discovery that you're saved by grace? It'll bring you joy. I mean, I got an email a while ago, Pastor Brock, I'm so depressed, etc. I try to do this, and I try to do this, and I just don't know if I'm saved. And I said to him, stop looking at you. If you look at you, you'll never know if you're saved. Look to Jesus on the cross. That's where our salvation is. And when you know you're saved by his grace, that's what it's all about. And you know, we're saved by grace alone, but grace never is alone. It always changes your life. But what saves us is the grace of Christ. So let me sum, up, sum this up. How should we deal with heresy in the church today? We should deal with it the same way they dealt with it in Acts chapter 15. You go to the apostles, the New Testament. The apostles' teaching is the New Testament. And what did the apostles say? And whatever they said, that's what the answer is. You've got to stand up and fight the heresy. Some of you go to churches where your pastors are preaching heretical stuff. It's time for you maybe to leave those churches and find a good Bible-preaching church. But take a stand for the gospel. Amen. Welcome to the portion of the pastor study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us not only his knowledge of scripture but his insights to answer questions that we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with him. As long as we've been talking from your sermon today, can I ask you why shouldn't Christians be circumcised? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, didn't God command it in the Old Testament yes. and now have we lost that? We, the, we, we have to read the Bible, it's called In Context. Who did he command that everyone should be circumcised? He said that to Abraham, the father of the Jews. So some of the things that were commanded in the Old Testament were given just to the Old Testament Jews, and they don't apply to New Testament Christians. For instance, Jackie, in Mark chapter 7, it says Jesus declared all foods clean. In the Old Testament, God wanted to make the Jews different from the rest of the peoples. So they had certain food laws, festivals they kept to make them different from the pagan nations. Now that Christ has come to save everybody, Jew and pagan, some of that stuff has gone the wayside. So I can have a hot dog and I'm not sinning. There are some groups, sadly, that are reviving this Judaistic heresy 
for which Paul wrote the book of Galatians and the whole book of Hebrews was written to show that Jesus fulfilled the law so Christians are freed from some of the things that were given to just the Jews in the Old Testament. Okay, well then you kind of just maybe answered my next question was to ask you, should we follow what the Old Testament teaches about, like say, not eating pork? Yeah, uh, we are freed not to. Again, Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. You do not have the apostles in the, in the epistles telling these Gentile Christians, you know, you, you got to not eat uh, camel and, and badger. and uh, None of that's in the New Testament because if you read the book of Hebrews, that was a shadow of the Christ who was to come. And, and so, Jackie, I get troubled and I get emails from these people. They're so insistent that we got to keep the Old Testament festivals and food laws. That's not in the New Testament. That was for the Old Testament Jews. Okay, well, you just kind of hit on the next question I have for you about the festivals. Mm -hmm. Should we be observing the festivals that God commanded in the Old Testament? Again, he commanded the Jews to observe the festival of the booths. He commanded the Jews to, to observe the Passover. Christians now, we have the new Passover, Paul says, which is the Holy Communion. You know, so we don't have to, and nothing's wrong with doing a Passover Seder, but that's not commanded or required of Christian. I'll tell you what's behind some of this, Jackie. A dear friend of mine's daughter has gotten into this cult-like group, and she um, believes you have to keep all, all those Old Testament festivals. You have to keep the Jewish food laws. And, it's, and, and the thing is, I went and I read the statement of faith of the group that she's in, no statement that we're saved by God's grace, not by good works. It's this very legalistic, trying to go back and put the Christians under the Old Testament laws, and it's killing my friend. Him and his wife are just grieved by what their daughter is into. It's just sad. So. Okay, you kind of just popped something into my head here. Is Christmas pagan then? Y- because yeah. Because that's uh, New Testament. She's in, she, all right, here, here's the deal. She's also, the same daughter is vehement that Christian is pagan and we Christians don't celebrate every, anything pagan. Well, wait a minute. Just because the ancient pagan Romans on December 25th worshiped Saturn during Saturnalia, who says I as a Christian can't worship Jesus on December 25th? Satan, because it has pagan origins, actually the early church to get people away from paganism said, instead of celebrating Saturnalia, let's celebrate the birth of Christ to help get people away from paganism. I don't think anything's wrong with that, Jackie. And so when people say you shouldn't worship Christmas because it's pagan, my response is, who says the devil owns December 25th? If I want to worship Christ's birth on December 25th, I can do that, and it's not pagan. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, we've all grown up, if you grew up in the churches, that Jesus came on Christmas Eve. And, and you know, that's not true. I mean, yeah. we have a 1 in 365 chance that Christmas is really December 25th. Right. But it's the, the, it's the message behind it that we celebrate. Right. Okay, that's a good point. So, Pastor Brock, how can you really tell if a church is really a cult? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I'm thinking of my friend's daughter. To me, these sign, there's two signs if you're in a cult. Number one, cults always deny the Trinity. Christians have always believed because the Bible teaches Jesus' last words on earth. Go ye therefore, baptizing in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians believe there's only one God, 
but in God or in the Godhead or three persons, God the Father who made us, Jesus Christ who died for us, the Holy Spirit. All three persons are God. All three persons are eternal. Still, in some mysterious way, there's only one God, not three gods. That's the Christian teaching. The group she's into is teaching that God the Father and God the Son are exactly the same. There's no distinction in the persons. Well, Jackie, God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Son died on the cross. There are distinctions. So if a church is denying the Trinity, Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God, Mormons teach there are thousands of gods, so you know you're in a cult if they deny the Trinity. And, and one more thing, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say at the door, well, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. They're right. The word Trinity isn't. The concept of the Trinity, I can show you the Trinity in the first paragraph of God creating. In the, in the beginning, God created. That's the Father. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. God said, let there be that. He speaks things into existence. That's the Word of God, Jesus. And, and the last words of Jesus on earth was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So uh, I, the, the word Trinity is not in there. The concept of the Trinity starts on Genesis page 1. Okay. So let's go back again to this thing about the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Do Christians need to observe the Sabbath on a Saturday, Saturday like yeah. Old Testament teaches? That's what the, that's what the Seventh-day Adventists teach. That's what this young woman is into now, that when the sun goes down on Friday all the way to the end of Saturday, that's her Sabbath, and you have to keep it that way because that's the way the Jews did it. Well, uh, my concern is, again, in the New Testament, there's evidence that they were worshiping on the first day of the week. Well, why would these Jews change their Holy Sabbath from Saturday to the first day of the week? You know the answer? Something big must have happened on Sunday. And that's been one of the traditional evidences for the resurrection of Christ. He rose from the dead on Sunday, and that's when Christians started to gather to worship. I don't think it's wrong to worship on Saturday. But for these groups to teach that if you worship on Sunday, you're violating the New Testament, that's not true. Okay, so you sort of answered, why do we worship, why do Christians that was worship it. on Sunday? In the, in the book of Acts, you've got, in the book of 1 Corinthians, I think, what is it, 16, 15? Uh, Paul talks about when you gather together on the first day of the week, put aside something about the offering. So there are evidences in the New Testament. You know, Seventh-day Adventists sometimes and others say, well, all that got changed when the Pope in the 300s declared Saturday instead of Sunday. No, it didn't. In the New Testament, they're worshiping on the first day of the week. Okay, but how do we know that it was a Sunday when Christ rose from the dead? I mean, we, we've got Good Friday right. and then yeah. you... Because, and that's a good question. Some people say if he, if he rose three days later and he died on Friday why didn't Friday Saturday Sunday why wasn't it Monday and Sunday for the Jews a part of a day was a day so he's in the grave part of Friday all day Saturday part of Sunday morning and so that was three days for them yeah. okay yeah. well we want to thank you for being with us there's our website on the uh, screen right now if you have any questions for Pastor Brock Go ahead and uh, send them to that site, and we'll take them up on another program. God bless until we're together again next time. Thank you for watching the Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? You may do so at pastorstudy.org. Or write the Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294. Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always.